today on the podcast, I have the absolute honor of sitting down with a legend, and that legend is Dr. Tom House. Now, Tom is a former Major League Baseball pitcher, but he's become through evolution, a world-renowned expert in the biomechanics of throwing. And he's worked through greats across different sports with people in baseball like Nolan Ryan, but also with some of the greats in the NFL like Tom Brady and Drew Brees, Andrew Luck, and the list goes on and on. He understands biomechanics and throwing, and he's been known as the quarterback whisperer. And Tom really is just an incredible person for what he's done, but more importantly, in my eyes, how he's continued to evolve over the years. And you'll hear about that evolution, about the lessons he's learned, and what he says through mostly through failure. He actually says, fail fast forward. He's continually pushing the edges, the boundaries with what he's done, what he's capable of. Even now at the age of 75, Tom was diagnosed with Parkinson's over 13 years ago, and they told him just in a couple of years, he'd be drooling in a wheelchair chair. Now, Tom has not gotten better, but he has continued to push through and he's doing more now than he's ever done. He even has a startup called Mustard, which is helping democratize all the lessons he's learned working with elite athletes so youth athletes can learn and evolve. And I'm going on here because I just appreciate so much who Tom is, what he's done, how he continues to evolve, continue to learn, and then share those lessons. He is a true beacon of hope a pillar of strength for those looking to continue to grow and expand their own potential. So I really hope you guys enjoy this conversation, which isn't just about sports, but Tom takes the lessons he's learned through the medium of sport and allows us to apply those foundational lessons to our own life, no matter what we're doing. So please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Tom House. Uh, what got you there? What got you? Got you? I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once a month deep dive called The Distillery, which is just a long form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitzkin, Michael Jordan, Bob Iger, Bruce Lee, Nick Saban, and many more. I also have 50 plus book recaps of my favorite reads. So you can find everything I just mentioned and more at whatgotyouthere.com. After five plus years learning from hundreds of the world's most successful people, I've taken the most important practices and lessons and distilled them down into my online course called You Unleash, which is going to help you become the person you know you're capable of becoming. Now, You Unleash is going to help you break free of your old habits and excuses. It's going to eliminate your limiting beliefs and start taking action in ways that will actually get you results. Now, the course has a proven curriculum that has helped people just like you take action towards creating the life they've dreamed of. Well, now it's your turn. You Unleash, though, isn't a quick fix. It's not a magic pill. It doesn't involve empty promises or lofty goals. Instead, it's a roadmap to your true potential. So are you ready to eliminate those fears and become that fully unleashed version of yourself? If so, enroll now by clicking the link below or heading to whatgotyouthere.com. Tom House, thank you so much for joining us on What Got You There. How are you doing today? Real good, Sean. Happy Monday. Oh, yeah. Happy Monday. You are someone, we were just saying a minute ago, that the way the way you see the world, what you've learned over the years, your path to mastery and then working with so many is so influential. And I think it's so applicable to anyone 
even if they aren't involved in sports. Uh, that's why I really wanted to have this conversation. But but I would love to kind of set a foundation here, and I would love to know, has there been a mindset of yours that has been most positively impactful for you throughout your life? Well, Sean, you know, you in a, in a roundabout way, you nailed exactly why I am and why we're sitting here talking to each other right now. My growing up under my mom and dad was kind of different. My dad was kind of a nerd. My mom was an Iowa farm girl with more common sense than most people have uh, anywhere, anywhere in the world. So we played sports, but sports were like, for example, I came home one day and I said, hey, hey, dad, I threw a no-hitter. And my dad was said, that's great. How did you do it? I said, what? He said, how did you do it? So we always had the how-to. Then I'd go to my mom and I'd say, hey, mom, I threw a no-hitter today. And she'd say, that's great. Did you get an A in English? So it was never about outcome. It was always about process. And it was never about strictly sport. It was about the process of being a human being that played sports. Does that make sense? Oh, that, that makes perfect sense. A, a lot of directions I would love to go. But, but I'm actually intrigued by that because we're in a society that's so um, outcome-focused. So yes. I, I'm yes. wondering for you what you've done or what you've seen of people like yourself who are process-oriented to get the others around them to be more process-oriented as opposed to outcome-focused. Well, again, you're, you're queuing me up so well here. Thank you very much. But I, I've been on this lifetime search to figure out how to get people to reframe. I, I'm not asking them to change their value proposition. I'm not asking them to change the way they think. What I am asking them is to put someone else's glasses on and look back at themselves and figure, figure out if there's a way that it can c collaborate instead of con confront. And can in a reframing, you always come out the other end better for the experience with a, with a collaboration. So I knew early on that I drove coaches nuts because if I didn't really understand what was going on, I would ask why in front of everybody. And you've been involved with sports, you know for a fact but a lot of coaches don't really have a lot of why with what they teach. So I figured out early on that I had to be very careful about who I was asking why. And as luck would have it, every time I'd hit a crossroads in my sports career, I'd end up with someone like a Rod Dato, who turned out to be one of the best mentors that I've ever had. I don't know if you know about USC and Trojan baseball and Rod Dato. But he was more interested in developing the young man than he was about being a great ball player. But he found in doing that, that if you develop the character of the man, the quality of the baseball gets better too. Did that make sense? That makes perfect sense. I, I'm really intrigued. I, I want to get into the development of the character there because uh, your life is, is so based on on values, um, which, which I appreciate so much. But I actually am intrigued by those crossroads. You said every time you reach one of those crossroads in your life, a great mentor happened to show up. Now, luck plays a, a huge role in all of our lives, and I, I appreciate the factor of, of luck in my own life and then within your own life. But I also find that intriguing that the perfect mentor seemed to arrive when the student was ready. Do you want to elaborate so on that? I would be glad to. Now, can we go? I'll, I'll only go back to high school. Is that fair? That's we could perfect. go back further than that. High school. We great. talked about my parents. The first coach that actually, quote, quote, got me was my freshman year in high school. I wanted to play varsity baseball. 
So per my mom's instruction, when you want something, you go ask the coach, what do I need to do to pitch on varsity? So when I did, Coach George Van Zandt was the, the, the head baseball coach at Nogales High School in La Puente, California. And I, when I went, went into his office to say, can I play on the varsity? He said, well, I don't normally let freshmen play on varsity. But he said, you've got a pretty good curveball. You look like you're competitive. Um, I'll give you a chance in pre-games and inter-squad games to show me what you can do. Well, evidently, he liked what he saw. So he started me off in the bullpen. And by the time halfway through my freshman year, I was the best. Well, I, in retrospect, I knew I was the best. But when it was happening, I was very competitive and became basically their Friday starter. So the bottom line there is I went in and asked. He told me what I needed to do. I did it. And he followed through and gave me a chance. Then the same basic thing happened at USC. I was at USC with, you know, Billy Lee, Tom Seaver, Dave Kingman. I mean, 15 of the 25 guys on that roster went to the big leagues. That's remarkable. <laughs> Obviously, I was not the best pitcher on the staff. But Rod made it very clear early that I didn't have to be Tom Seaver. I had to be the best Tom House I could be. And that was huge. There's a little, little side story with that. Can I share it with please, you? Please do, Tom. So my first bullpen, my first official bullpen as a Trojan baseball player, I'm doing my best, what I think is my best. And this guy next to me is making me look like a bunt compared to a home run. So I'm uh, throwing as hard as I can. And it's just barely getting up there. This guy next to me is going, yeah, pow, pow, pow. Coach Dato comes up, puts his hand on my shoulder, said, Tommy House, what do you think of young Tom Seaver? And I said, Rod, if you need if you need me to do what he's doing, you got the wrong left-hander. <laughs> and he said, No, 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 no. I don't need you to be Tom Seaver. I need to I need to have you be Tom House. He's going to be after the bat. You're going to be before the bat. Both of you are going to win a lot of games for the Trojans. So what Rod did right away is he took all the pressure of me trying to be something I couldn't and, and allowed me to be myself. And that became one of the tenets by which I, I still coach through his eyes with everybody I deal with today. I'm not looking to find out, are you the best in the game? I'm asking every athlete, whether it's a Brady, a Breeze, whoever it might be, are you being the best you that you can be? So you see how I got kind of influenced by both of them? Have you got time for one more? Please. I, I've, got, I've got time for every story you've got, Tom. <laughs> okay. So my second year in AAA ball, uh, I'm getting my lunch. I'm just getting pounded. Every, every start is kind of ugly. So... You know when the ma when the manager says Tom, let's go for a walk. It's it's not it's not going to be a real positive thing. So I'm thinking I'm going to either get released or sent back to Double A ball. So he sits me down out in the bullpen, just him and me, and he said, Tom, what's your ERA first time through the lineup? I really didn't know. He said, Well, it's right at two, which is pretty good. So all of a sudden, I'm getting many many optimistic. But then he asked the next, next question, what's your ERA second time through the lineup? I didn't know that either. He said, well, it's close to five. Mm. And I'm thinking, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Then he asked the question, 
what's your ERA third time through the lineup? And I said, ooh, I know that one. I never make it three times through the lineup. <laughs> so, and they said, okay, so what am I going to do with you? And I literally, I remember this answer as long as it, well, send me to double A to, to learn another pitch. I mean, I'm trying to buy myself a yeah. job. He said, no, 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 no. He said, I'm going to put you in the bullpen and use you three or four times a week, no more than one time through the lineup. I was in the big leagues the next year. So you see how lucky I got? He was an analytics guy before anybody had even used the term analytics. He put me where my skill set fit what the team needed. So you see how lucky I was? Now, on my behalf, because of what I learned from my mom and dad, I produced when they gave me the chance and told me what I needed to do, I did produce. So even though I wasn't real big and not a great athlete, when I was given the chance, I put numbers up. Yeah, it certainly sounds like when preparation meets opportunity, you put in that work. So yes. when that showed up, one of the, one of the phrases that I just really piqued my interest a minute ago is what you said: "The coach got me for the first time. They understood who Tom House was." I'd love to expand you as a coach, working with thousands of people now. What what you've been able to do to assess and and really figure out who the best version of that athlete? What do they look like? Well, believe it or not, again, and I'm sure we'll talk about it before we're done today. But I hit the crease between old school and new school. And new school is basically we've taken advantage of all the technology that's out there. My PhD is actually in performance psychology. And there are two or three online instruments where you can actually see what kind of a learner are you? What kind of a personality do you have? Are you right brain or left brain? And how, how do you deal with someone when the way they teach and the way you learn don't match up, how can both of you come out of it better for the experience? So the, the research and the knowledge and the, the application is out there. And what I've managed to do, I think pretty well, is to become a, a technology version of what Rod data, what Rod data was, where he could actually, everybody that walked in his room, he could figure out personality and learning and put people where they had the best chance to succeed. I think myself and the people I work with are really good at that right now. Th that, that brings up another point. You, you said kind of the, the merger of, let's just call it art and science, right? Like taking the, the right. new data right. with, with what you had learned through so many years. And w what I tease out of that is just your evolution. This isn't, hey, I'm Tom House, this is my view, this is set in stone. You're continuing to learn to take best lessons you've known, but then adopt new ones. Is that consistent? You're, that's very perceptive. And the really cool thing about not being the best athlete on the field, you know, basically, if you look at me and my career, I was always the ninth, tenth man on a 10-man pitching staff. I never was a profile guy in, in a professional environment. So I had a lot less pressure from the outside. Any pressure I had was from the inside trying to survive and just have a job to pay some bills. So the fact that the expectations from the outside coaching and fan base and front office wasn't that high allowed, allowed me to kind of be left alone. And when, when, when I'm left alone, I'll figure out a way to either screw it up really good or have, have a better a better way to do it than what I have done previously. And that also taught one of the other things that we believe in 
We call it fail fast forward. People don't realize you learn more from your failures and your adversity than you do from your successes. Anybody can go good. I mean, anybody can go good. The true character of an athlete and the true application of his talents and skills are when things are going bad. And my, my life seriously has been, I probably have failed more than anybody my age in the game, but I've learned from every one of them. And the fact that I've failed fast forward, I've taken those experiences and that knowledge and turned it into what I like to call wisdom, where I'm able to see things that a lot of other people don't see because I've had to. I've had to look at the world a little bit different. Does that make sense? It makes total sense, Tom. I'm really intrigued. The failure happens. What are next steps for Tom House there? So you can walk away on the other side of that with some wisdom. Well, what I'm doing right now is, for me, wisdom is old age imagination. Like, uh, we just had a camp this weekend, and one of the kids, uh, one of the younger boys, I said, when you were four years old, what did you want to be? And I'm thinking the kid would say, well, I want to be Sandy Koufax or whoever it might be. And he said, I wanted to be a fire truck. And I went, whoa, here's a, four, here's a four-year-old that wants to be a fire truck. And I felt like saying, well, you know you can't be a fire truck. But a four-year-old doesn't know he can't be a fire truck. Well, at 75 and, and looking back over everything I've done, what a 75-year-old with imagination has is the ability to take these silos of information that are out there and put combinations together that nobody has ever done before. If I have a gift, that's what it is. I, you know, with education, degrees, academics, I've got that on my side. People don't realize that, you know, I have between playing and coaching, I got 20 years in the major leagues and I probably couldn't make a high school team today. So I've got that. And then I've got the experience I've been coaching since the San Diego School of Baseball in 1969. So I don't think there's anybody out there that has that combination of academics, professional experience, and hands-on coaching. And what we're trying to do, and, and these kind of phone calls really help, I'm trying to mentor a number of people in my environment to become their raw data. Um, and I, I think we're onto something that works really well. I've got really good people. And when you put really good people together, we don't always agree. But when we actually fight, and we do have not physical fights, but we have intellectual fights all the time, what comes out at the end is a better product that can be delivered to athletes to help them with their development. So we found a model without even, it's been organic. It hasn't been well thought out, but it actually works. You're talking about that that collaboration there. I'm, I'm pretty yes. sure it, it was Steve Jobs, uh, one of his mentors. Um, he went down into his basement and he showed up all these old rocks, just all rugged and, and disformed and everything. And then he put them in a rock tumbler. And the next day they came back and they had these smooth, polished rocks. And he said the exact same thing needs to happen in your business. You need to create a little friction. You need to challenge ideas. You need that intellectual rigor. That's really important. Uh, that was just a side note. One of the things you said a second ago, I'm really intrigued by, is just your ability to look at different silos of information and then combine them. Combinatorial creativity, right? Like putting those different things together. Right. Is that something that can only come out or come through over time? Or could you have sped that process up? I, for me personally, I don't think it could have come any faster than it's come. 
But the key that, and I don't know whether you even know you said it, is not getting locked into the baseball box. Even though my life's passion has been baseball, um, because of my upbringing with my mom and my dad, I've done other things. My mom didn't care that I played in the big leagues. She was more proud of the PhD by my name. In fact, on her deathbed, she said, now, Thomas, when are you going to find a real job? It was beyond their comprehension that someone could make a living playing. So the ability to not get locked into the baseball box allowed me early on to see the value of motion analysis, the value of force plate and energy translation when it came to conditioning, to understand the value of recovery and how nutrition and sleep contribute to, to recovery. And then the mental emotional, actually looking at failure as a positive thing, not a negative thing. And I don't think those combinations of whatever you want to call it would have worked if I had been strictly a baseball guy. You just mentioned a few things, um, and I know these are foundational type pillars you, you base the, the training on. Can you actually dive a little bit further into those? I know you mentioned some of them around mindset, nutrition, and stuff. I, I'd love to, for you to expand on them. Well, without getting too deep, we did a regression analysis. And, and, and a regression analysis is basically you look at the most important variables, then the second most, third most, until the variables really don't affect the outcome. And this is where the academics came true for me. So when we did a regression analysis on the principles that contributed most to in order health and then performance, it was biomechanical efficiency, functional strength, nutrition and sleep for recovery, and mental emotional management for stress and anxiety. And all of a sudden there's four pillars right there. If you become very good at putting them together, you not only are a better athlete for yourself, but you're a better instructor if you're teaching. One of the things you said there, I'm pretty sure you said that was the order they go in biomechanics at first and, and then mindset around stresses and things like that, uh, the, the fourth component. Is that correct? You're, yes. And that wasn't necessarily because of impact per variable. It was those four presented themselves as the most important to that athlete's health and performance. And what it boils down to, like if you came to us, anybody in our in my organization, for an evaluation and a help with your performance. You may have come for mechanics, but you're gonna get strength, nutrition, and mental emotional. You may have come for mental emotional, but you're gonna get the other three. So when you, when you come to us, your performance and your health aren't gonna be a, a one-leg table. The four legs of the table are four pillars, our mechanics, you see how it all, all fits together? Yeah. And then our job for myself personally and for all the people that work with me is to be the best we can be in each one of those foundation corners. You, you mentioned again and again, Tom, how you need to be the best you can be. And right. I, I would love to know how you think this through. Because the way I think that through, that takes a lot of self-awareness, self-knowledge, self-reflection. Is that true for you? And what has that process been like for you? You know, you're you're making this really easy for me. You know that, don't you? But and I want your listeners. We're just two guys. We're just two guys having a beer out of the bar right now. Well, pretty much. We yeah. this has not been rehearsed. I mean, this is something that is basically cold turkey. But you're asking questions that are very salient to what where I think we are, 
So do you mind asking that question again while I stick this thing in my ear? It fell out all by itself and I'm getting nervous about it. Can you still hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you fine. So yeah, take, take uh, as much time as you need putting that one back in. Ask that same question again there. I, I'm in. Okay. What was the question again, please? I'm trying to remember the, the exact wording there. Um, so uh, when I do that, what you just did right there, uh, you know who Socrates was, right? Well, Socrates is probably the best question asker of all time. <laughs> exactly. That's how he learned. When you ask questions, it does two things. It forces feedback, and it tells whether you're the problem or the person that you're asking the question is the problem. And then another thing Socrates believed, that everybody had an answer in their head, and it was up to whoever the instructor was to find that answer by asking questions. So the, the bottom line is when I'm working with kids or coaches or whatever it is, I ask a lot of questions, but I'm going to admit this to you and nobody else. When I say to a kid what I just say, it's number one to find out what he's listening or hearing, but it's also the fact that I forgot what I just said. So the two of us, are, we caught each well, other. I, 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 I help you out. Yeah, it was around the self-knowledge. It actually dealt with questions in terms of self-reflection, self-assessment, okay, how you best understand uh, yourself. Yeah. The, there's, you know, there's hindsight, uh, insight, and foresight. And hindsight and foresight only work if you have insight. Hmm. And insight is the looking at the intra you, the inside of you, and how it relates to the outside of you, the inter. And again, because of mom and, mom and dad, that was something that came early for myself and my brother. We, my, my folks were always saying, well, was it when you got in the fight, was it his fight? Was it his problem or your problem? So I was always saying, well, why did that guy kick my rear end? And by the way, when you're a small man with a big mouth, you don't win very many fights. <laughs> so I, if I've had 50 fights in my life, I've had my clock cleaned in 47 of them. <laughs> but we, I learned from every one of those fights, if that, if that makes any sense. Now, I know I diverted a little bit. Was that kind of on what you were asking? No, no, no. I, I love it. Um, not, not, not a great batting average there with the fights, but uh, we'll, we'll go not on to that one, Tom. Yeah, it was around the self-reflection, self-understanding. And what, I, what I'm hoping we can do here is, is really take your stories, your lessons, and so people can apply them in their own lives. And something you've mentioned again and again, you just said it in your last answer, was around your parents. And you said, fortunately for the, the way my parents were around the dinner table, I'm wondering then, what can we do as leaders to build a better foundation for our Perfect. kids? Yeah. When you're boohooing, is it your problem or the problem of the, of the people that are around you? And I honestly believe that more often than not, the problem lies within you, not necessarily with outside of you. And when you can self-reflect with an open mind, where you don't judge, you know, right or wrong, but basically degrees of good and bad, that everybody survives accordingly. So if I could make a suggestion to anybody that's willing to listen to me, when there's a problem that shows up, problem identification is half the solution, but you want to make sure that you're not the problem, that the problem isn't being generated on your end. Because a lot of times people will put them, in, especially in sports, will put but the, when there's issues going on, they'll look for sources for the, the problem outside of themselves. Always start with yourself. Just like you want to be the best person you could be at that point in time, you also have to make sure that when there are problems, that you're, you're part of the solution and you aren't the problem.
this makes me think, Tom, to something you mentioned a little while ago. Um, you mentioned you didn't you didn't feel that external pressure, and this makes me think. I'm bringing this up because what you just mentioned, um, we tend to get out of our own mind, right? We're we're focused on out there as opposed to in here. What what have you done? What have you seen over the years working with elites that allow them to not let that external pressure affect them so much? Well, they they literally do not necessarily respond to the booze or the cheers. Their internal drive, their internal mechanisms, their, uh, their ability to realize that the focus is more important from the inside out than the outside in. In fact, if you don't mind a little definition that I'm very proud of, everybody talks about the zone and the superstars. Mm-hmm. Well, we have researched and we know that the zone or those white moments, those you know times of clarity in a game or a season, are when thinking is inversely proportionate to the stimulus of the environment. In in other words, the crazier the environment is, the less thinking an athlete will actually do. And when he stops worrying about things he can't control, he gets way better at things he can control. Do you see how the deductive logic worked there? Yes. Too many people judge themselves and are judged by outcome when outcome isn't the answer. You can't control outcomes. You can only control process. And then it's a way of of looking at things. Now, I didn't do very well when I pitched for the Boston Red Sox. In fact, for two of the three years I was there, I never heard my last name. I was now pitching for the Sox. Number 29, Tom. Boo! I, I got booed there because I had I had a failure in a, in, a, in a game against the Yankees when we were fighting for playoffs where I gave, a, gave up a home run that probably cost the Red Sox the season. So I got booed a lot in Boston. In fact, my middle daughter came home one day crying. And she said, Dad, are you as bad as my English teacher says you are? And I said, you know what, honey? Probably yes. In his eyes, I'm not real good. I probably shouldn't even be part of the Red Sox. But let's look at it positively. He comes, he buys a ticket, comes to the ballpark and boos me. His buying the ticket pays the Red Sox and allows the Red Sox to pay me a salary so that we can live at the beach and be happy with our existence. So I encourage him to come and boo as long as he comes to the ballpark and pays for it. So she walked away with the idea, well, then he's the dummy, not you. I said, if you want to to look at it that way, that's fine with me. So it's just a reframe. It's just a different way to look at things that turns out positive for both sides. Nobody is the enemy there. Does that make sense? It does. And I'm actually intrigued. You, you give up that home run the hours after the game. Anything interesting happened there? I think the story is out there. Um, I was crushed. I mean, I, I knew that I had probably, I don't know how big the money was, but I probably cost everybody in the team at least ten grand in playoff money. So I'm sitting on the bench, and you know what Yankee Stadium is like. You don't want to, after a loss, you don't want you know what's waiting for you in the clubhouse. There'll be 15, 20 riders waiting to get waiting to get a quote, and it's just ugly. So I'm sitting on the bench. I do not want to go in the clubhouse. I do not want to be there. And the ground crew's finishing up, the stadium crew's finishing up. And here comes the captain of our team, Carl Yastrzemski. He walks up and he sits down next to me, got a couple of beers, gives me a beer and says, was it the right pitch? 
And I said, yes. He said, was it wrong? Was it the wrong result? I said, obviously. He said, forget about it. It's no big thing. It's only chips. It's not like losing friends. Now, in retrospect, I got mentored again. Yeah. It's only money. It's not like losing friends. And what he told me in his words were, come on back in the clubhouse. Every one of those 24 other guys know exactly how you feel. They have empathy for you, and they've already turned the page. Okay? Now, the fans take forever to turn the page. But the cool thing about the team env environment, you talk, and it's very similar to the military. Basically, your 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 best friends, your partners in crime, your partners in combat, your partners in competition are your teammates, and they have empathy. They understand adversity. Sports are games of failure. Yeah. Everybody's going to have their moment, good and bad. And if it if it had been anybody but but Yaz, I probably would have still be sitting on that bench in Yankee Stadium. But he brought me in, went through the process. And for me, I was done with it because I, 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 I knew I couldn't change the outcome. But what I, was, what I have since learned, I, I don't know if this is where we were going, but you can look in, in the past and dwell on it, or you can look in the past and re-script. And if you re-script enough, your brain will actually eliminate all the trauma that went with that decision. And that's what's going on right now with post-traumatic stress disorder. They used to try to medicate it out of kids. Now they've realized they just have them reframe it. In other words, rewrite the script to the movie that they lived through. Now you're going to rewrite the script to a positive thing that they're actually living in the moment right now. So that's what the best athletes in the world that I've seen and the research supports that what just happened 20 seconds ago or 20 minutes ago or four hours ago, you can't change. And to dwell on it, is to ask 90 trillion selves to live through the trauma again. What you want to do is reframe that out outcome, trick yourself into a new ending, rescript it, and move on from there. Tom, can you actually go a bit further on the rescripting? Because I feel like a lot of listeners listeners will hear this and they'll say, "Well, that's easy enough to to say you're going to rescript it." You know this because of experience true hard-earned experience. Uh, I think you know what I'm referring to here, something that you learned 10 years ago, and I would love to know what that process has been like for you and how you've been able to take the lessons you just spoke about and actually live them. Well, I'm going to take a little bit longer to answer this question because I think it's important. Um, think, think of a triangle, and there's three triangles that, that we build a pyramid from. The first the first triangle is the person you are, the person you want to be, and the person that people see. And if all three of those don't match up, you've got to disconnect. The second pyramid is you care too much. You care too much about what people think, and you care more about the outcome than you do the process. And then the third triangle is passion, motivation, and commitment. Passion is a positive need state. More than half your 90 trillion cells uh, don't just want to do what you're doing. They need to. It's a need state. Motivation is structured passion. If you're motivated and a coach gives you something that will make you better, then it requires commitment to the process to be motivated to get that passion satisfied. Kids, workers, whoever it might be, 
show up for a job every day with X amount of motivation. There's no way they're going to have any more, more motivation from the outside. It can only come from the inside. So a coach, an instructor, a boss, a teacher, their job is to not demotivate, not make the motivation worse than what they show up. But the bottom line, when you put all those triangles together, you create a pyramid. And I don't know whether you're aware, but the pyramid is the strongest ge geometric, it's the strongest geometrical form on the planet. No matter what side you push a pyramid, there's two sides pushing back. So strength of character, strength of the ability to deal with adversity comes from putting the best possible to get three, the best possible triangles together for your own personal pyramid. So that's 50 years of screwing up in about three, three minutes of sentences right there. Did you see the logic to all that? I absolutely and do. Kids, uh, male and female, smart, intel, whatever it might be, all seem to visualize that pretty easy. And, and, and that's how we quantify everything. You mentioned 50 years of screw-ups to get to that. Um, wh wh when did you actually really get to that thinking and that, and that framework? Probably... It's, it's been, I'd like to tell you exactly, but it's, it's been apparent to me over the last maybe 10 years. I'll tell you when it became really apparent is when I got Parkinson's or when I was diagnosed with Parkinson's and I had a legitimate excuse to go boohoo and pull the plug. And when I started asking about Parkinson's, nobody had any idea what Parkinson's people were supposed to do other than ride a bike and take medication. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to approach this just like I approached trying to get a big league hitter out. What, are the, what, what, what can we do to at least hold our own? Now, I haven't gotten any better, but I was diagnosed almost 13 years ago, and I'm still holding my own. Where they told me what I should be doing right now is be sitting in a wheelchair drooling on myself. I haven't given in. And I found people with a like mindset, a Kirk Gibson. Here, here in, I'm in Detroit right now. Kirk Gibson, same thing with him, and independent from me, has arrived at the same observation and conclusion about Parkinson's. It's not something that kills you unless you let it. You can live with Parkinson's and lead a productive life. And because of that, he and I are putting our heads together. We're going to do a documentary on Parkinson's to help people that give up, that actually throw in the towel when they're diagnosed. So those are the kind of things where what could have been a really bad thing is going to end up being a good thing, not just for Kirk and myself. And you see how lucky I am to run into those guys because Kirk is a superstar and combine his visibility and what he does with what I've been doing on the, on the, on the other side, it comes out the synergy between the two. We're actually going to make a difference in the Parkinson's world. So again, you see how lucky I've been for that person shows up every time I can go one way or the other. It seems like I run into somebody where we end up going the right way. Well, it seems like these foundational relationships, as you mentioned, have, have come up again and again. What have you done to be on the other side of that relationship? So these people, I, it, it's not just Tom House getting some, some great value and admiration out of these people. I, I'm, I'm having this interview with you because the amount of wisdom that you have. And I can guarantee you the other people that you've built these relationships with over the years feel fortunate every time they get to talk with you. 
And I'm wondering what are some of the things that you've done to help those relationships? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to simplify this for you real quick. I'm kind of, and they, they kind of behind my back, but I know they're doing it. They, I'm considered like the Forrest Gump of pro sports where I'm not sure why it ever happened, but he always seems to be at the right place at the right time. That that's kind of my life. I mean, I didn't ask to catch Henry Aaron's 715th home run. I just happened to be in the bullpen in a spot where it landed. So, but you have to be on the dance floor to be able to listen to the music. So, and then the fact that I've I've never judged and I never hold a scorecard with anybody that I deal with. And it's reciprocity. You know, when you walk in a room and you run into an authentic person, you'll hang around with that person because you know what he, you know, actually know who he is or she is. Where the person that tries to be everything at all times to everybody, they never know, they're never the right thing to anybody. So again, uh, I know I frustrate people, but I also know I help people. But the one thing I can honestly say with both myself and the people I work with, we are authentic. You may not like what you hear, but you can hang your hat on it. And when the time is right, we'll have an answer. We'll find an answer. If we don't have one for you right now, we will find an answer. And that's where the Forrest Gump comes with the stuff. Um, didn't re I would like to say it was very well planned out. It was not. But at every juncture, we made the best of every situation we were in. And that is that is what I think is the genius of the people that I work with. Yeah, not, not having the full thought out plan, like you said, I think a lot of people expect that, but hey, just like this conversation, we're just playing some jazz music over here. Uh, one of the things that, that I think a lot about around authenticity, I, I know that's a buzzword, but it's a rare commodity. I, I think you've probably seen that. So few people are, are truly themselves at the core. And I'm wondering for you and your own evolution, when did, you, when did you find that you were fully authentic? Is that something you'd always had from an extremely early age or did that take longer to come out? I'll tell you something that I learned organically. I found that kids and dogs figure out authenticity faster than anything else. If anybody, if an adult or a coach or an authority figure gets along with kids and puppies, kids and dogs, they're going to be authentic. The ones that don't get along with kids and dogs, kids know intuitively who they can, who they can trust. And trust is something that in today's world, think about how crazy the real world is right now. Nobody trusts anything. But in sport, you learn really fast to trust your teammate. The four things that hold a team together basically are family, friends, faith, and affiliation. And I think sports in the military are one of probably two of the last pieces in the world where you can actually find authenticity and trust every day. You seem to be great, Tom, at, at having the, these frameworks that are very simple. They're, they're deeply filled with wisdom. Um, and one of them that, that I take a great deal from is inform, instruct, inspire for ignition. And I would love if you could expand on this. I you've, do, you've done your homework, haven't you? Tom, we just added the fourth eye about a year ago. So inform, instruct, and inspire has done, has done really well for us. But there was one final piece, and we've only added it into all our deliveries now, ignition. 
And ignition is when whoever it is, whether you're 70 years old or 20 years old or a four-year-old trying to be a fire truck, there comes a time in everybody's life when something grabs at them, grabs at them and they, they start seeing the whole world through whatever that thing is. So I got ignition early on with being a pitcher because of people like Sandy Koufax and the Dodgers. So early on, I started looking at my whole world, whether it was academic, whether it was sports, whatever, through a pitching lens. And if we can find information and instruction and inspiration to go with that ignition, then we're actually mentoring, we're actually mentoring, we're mastering and mentoring a kid and making a difference in his life or her life, whoever it might be. So you kind of see how the pieces interchange and I don't think I would have understood, I, I don't think I would have understood the concept of ignition 25 years ago. I get it now because of reading and looking at other people's bodies of work. And the concept of ignition just kind of fits our gestalt right now. Our map of reality changes, but it's been authentic and consistent for 50 years. I want to dive a little bit further into ignition here in a second, but one of the things you said is you you couldn't have come up with that or had that 25 years ago, and that's because of your learning, your research, um, your reading. W what is that process like for you? I'm just wondering, have there been any foundational books, resources that you come across over the years that have been really helpful for you? All, all of them. I read a lot, and I would encourage people listening to this podcast to continue to read a lot, but there's there's windows of learnability. Long-term adaptive learning is you learn to learn, you learn, and you learn to relearn. And they're age-specific. And unfortunately, with COVID and computers and the internet and social media, learning to learn, learning and learning to relearn gets all screwed up. And the bottom line is you have to figure out what kind of a learner are you? Are you auditory? Are you visual? Are you tactile? or all the above. And we couldn't identify what kind of a learner you, you were 25 years ago. And we didn't realize that you can read, my dad lived to be 102, and he was still relearning at 102. He, he, he always played bridge, he never played a lot of chess. And from age 98 to 102, he wanted to be a master at playing chess. And his big frustration was the young chicks in the rest home where he was living would get bored with chess, whether they loved to play cards, but they hated chess. You know how old the young chicks were, right? <laughs> 85 to 95. So it's, so it's all relative. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. I think this ties into something you were mentioning a second ago around ignition. We're talking about motivation and you relearning. And I'm even intrigued now. Uh, Tom, you're 75, right? Yes. And working on this company, Mustard, essentially a, a business startup where it's almost like you're applying everything you've been talking about over the years, where you're continuing to expand, to share that knowledge, but to seek new knowledge and build on top of that. And, and I would love to just hear you talk about what you've been learning uh, and what you've been doing with Mustard. Sure. This is how Mustard came about. We are, and every one of my consults for the last 35 years, we always have a lecture before we go out on the field to do anything. And I was up at USC and doing research up there. And after one of the lectures, one of my current partners said, 
I wonder how many guys with Nolan Ryan's abilities went home because they didn't understand who they were or how the fit was or couldn't afford to get what is a $30,000 weekend for an elite Hall of Fame guy. And that was when the beginning of the idea, we want to democratize the information that the elite get and put it in the hands of the most people possible. And we knew from research that there's 140 million pre-adolescent athletes out in the world right now. And 85% of those kids will stop playing sports before age 14. What would happen if we allowed them to be able to have enough information and instruction and hopefully inspiration and ignition just to play through high school? Well, not, now we know from our long-term adaptive learning that if you get into 17 or 18 with a construct intellectually that matches your physical, you've got a better chance to be a more productive adult. So be, our, our goal became, can we keep kids playing sports four years longer? And that's where the idea of getting emotion analysis on a cell phone, which is Mustard's primary responsibility, but we're backing it up. We're also giving them, once we've identified poor mechanics or, or good mechanics, we give you the drills to fix it, the functional strength to support it, the nutrition and sleep to recover from it, and the mental emotional to, to kind of laugh at failure and learn from it. But we want it all to be on a cell phone because out there right now, even poor kids in Africa have cell phones. So we figured that was the best vehicle to democratize what we charge 30,000 a weekend for our Hall of Famers. Can we put it in the hands of parents with you know younger than teenage kids for free? And that's where it's going. Yeah, Tom, what I appreciate so much is that democratization, right? Like so many of these people that have tapped into something that only the elites get access to, they, they want to hold that. They don't want everyone else to see it. You're, you're giving all of these, these youth players, these youth athletes, the opportunity to evolve, to stay connected and to grow. Um, I just appreciate that so much being so involved in athletics my entire life, the amount of coaching I've done, uh, seeing those kids quit, um, be, breaks your heart. Yeah, it actually breaks your heart. One of the, but I'm I'm being I'm also going to be honest with you. I have more fun with the nine, ten, eleven, twelve year olds than I do the superstars. They're pure. I think it was Art Linkletter in the fifties out of programs. Kids say the darndest things. Yeah. I still. I, we just finished. Like I said earlier, we finished the camp this weekend, and we had twelve or thirteen pre. A whole bunch of 9, 10, 11 years old. I was laughing every moment because of the way they answer questions. You talk about Occam's razor, giving a simple answer. They, they come up with some of the phrases, and I use them all the time. So, again, uh, when it gets right down to it, it sounds like it was well planned out. It wasn't. But organically, we're coming up with stuff that is really authentic, and I think that's the beauty of what we do. Absolutely. One of the things, Tom, I, I am fascinated by is some of those people who reach the elite, elite, elite level. Um, and why I'm so fascinated with what you've done is, is you worked with greats across different disciplines. You've worked with someone like Nolan Ryan. You've also worked with someone like Tom Brady, Drew Brees, where that is very rare, being able to, to see that differentiation. And when, when you're thinking about some of those people, when you first start working with someone, what are you, what are you assessing? What are you teasing out that it takes 50 years uh, of experience to be able to see? 
Well, I'll tell you something that nobody will admit to, but even those elite guys are just big 12-year-olds. It's I call it the terminal adolescent syndrome. If you're going to play sports, you're going to be a 12-year-old the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. But what they have, the, the Hall of Famers, the guys that are, are the superstars, they've matched that 12-year-old enthusiasm with the idea that they're going to get better at something every day. Mm -hmm. And like Brady, for example, has made a life out of getting 1% better at something every day. So, and they all do it differently. They apply it differently. But even today, Nolan, Nolan Ryan in, re, in retirement is looking to get better at something every day. There's this genetically predisposed push to get better at something in your life every day. Well, look at my dad. He wanted to learn how to play chess late in his life. So, and that's the reason to get up in the morning. And when you're brushing your teeth at night, looking back on the day, if you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, hey, I got better at this today, but I need work on this. What's the first thing you need to do when you get up in the morning? So it's kind of, it kind of gives you a roadmap for inter and intra, intrapersonal evaluation. And that, that insight is the difference. So to answer your question as best I can, the only difference between the elite and the everyday is that 1% better the lights and the paychecks. Now I have to know you're talking um, about the elites and then even about being in the zone earlier. One thing I'm intrigued by is there are certain people. Um, I saw this a lot in sports. I see this in the business world that just have a different factor about them. I always think of it as like the it factor. Um, and I, I'm wondering because you've worked potentially with, with more greats than anyone else. I'm wondering, have you seen this or is this just something I've made up in my head that certain people They've got something different about them. Um, it, it is an it factor, and it makes them unique. Is that something you've seen? No, that it's yeah, it is unique. It is an it, and you just have to make sure that when you're looking for the it, that the glasses you're looking through aren't forcing you into a corner. Mm -hmm. And re remember, the it factor can come in different parts of the that are pillars of performance, but there's this overriding youthful look at having fun as a 12-year-old because you ask a 12-year-old after a loss he might feel really bad until the pizza or whatever but they have short memories and the the 32-year-old or the 42-year-old superstar uh, Paul Molitor for example he said as he he had the same statistics hitting wise at age 22 as he did at age 42, but he had a mindset at age 42, he learned how to make his slumps shorter. Hmm. So he still acknowledges that he has slumps, but he learned how to make them shorter. So when he goes to the ballpark and he's been over for three days, he's not worried about the slump. He knows it's gonna last less time than it did when he was 22, even though at the end of the season, the, all the numbers looked about the same. His approach when he showed up was way different because of his knowledge and experience. Is that too much? No, you could expand as much as you want, Tom. It wouldn't be too much. Well, something that just keeps coming out though is even around your love, your passion, the fun, the playful element, it seems like you're still bringing. I mean, is that true? Am I, am I looking into this too much? I No, you're dead on with your observation. I think the reason I'm still chugging away and has some relevancy at age 75 with Parkinson's 
is that nobody has more fun at the ballpark than I do. It's, it's a reason for me to get up. It's a reason for me to push through things that would normally, you know, cause me an issue. I'm looking at it. How, you know, what can I do to be the best I can be when this camp starts on Friday? Just continuing asking the, yourself those those tough questions yeah. there. Perfect. I'm doing the same thing at 75, trying to be a coach with a bunch of 14-year-olds that I did process-wise when I was 21 years of trying to get to the big league. One thing I would love to tap into, just because you've got so much wisdom around this, you were mentioning the kids when they're going out for a pizza afterwards. What what can we do as leaders um, and as parents to continue that that vigor kids have for youth sports? Well, let them play. It's not about you; it's about your kid or who you, the athlete that you're working with. So you got as as an instructor, as a source of knowledge. You have to make sure that it doesn't have strings attached. So that's number one. It's got to be about the athlete. It's got to be about the kid. Number two, you have to let them have fun with a purpose. You have to hold them accountable. Uh, they have to have expectations that are manageable. They have to play by all the same rules, but you have to make it a learning environment where they have fun relearning. They have to be taught that if you're not failing, you're not trying. And if you don't look at your failures as something that's going to make you better, you're probably not going to play past high school. The hardest thing I have, and you mentioned earlier, this is your fault, not mine. We live, we live in an outcome world. And tr trying to mentor kids to get over that into where their value proposition is being the best they can be, that's the challenge. And I think what we're doing, working with young athletes, might be one of the few battlefields left where we're still winning. A lot of people need to, to fight that war, and you're one of the brave ones doing it. Uh, listeners, I'm also going to have the, the Mustard app linked up um, so you guys can click in the show notes here. You guys can see all about that, um, what Tom's building over there, what they're doing. Tom, we're going to round this one out here in a minute, but I, I would love okay. to know, um, talking about some of those greats a minute ago, do you have a story that you've been in awe of by someone you've worked with that you just saw someone at a different level than you usually come across? All right. Uh, it's one It's one of my standbys. It's one of the stories that I tell everybody, even though today's generation of youth athletes don't even know who Nolan Ryan is or was. When it became apparent to me that those Hall of Fame guys like Nolan are just a little different in some ways, it's the day he threw his seventh no-hitter. Now, this is going to take about two minutes. Are you okay with this? Take 20 minutes if you want, Tom. <laughs> okay. So the day he threw his seventh no-hitter, he'd been having issues the whole previous four or five days leading up to the, the no-hitter day. Bad back, bad left knee, not really feeling too good about it, but he stayed with his process. So he's, I'm out there watching him while he's getting ready to warm up, to loosen up, to go in the game. And when he gets to the mound for pregame warm-up, it's ugly. No fastball, bouncing his curveball, changeup non-existent, walking around the mound, rubbing his back, kind of looking frustrated. It came to a point where I actually went to the bullpen phone and I called Bobby Valentine, our manager, down in the dugout. And I said, I don't think Nolan's going to be able to go today. And just as that came out of my mouth, Nolan walked from the bullpen mound into the clubhouse. And I said, Bobby, I, I got to go with Nolan basically just left the mound. He said, well, what's going on? I said, I don't know, but go ahead and get Barfield up just in case Nolan can't go to post. So I chased Nolan 
he basically had gone into the clubhouse for whatever the reason, and he was already walking down the tunnel to get to the game. Uh, he didn't make the national anthem, but he did jog out after the national anthem and, you know, visualize the bullpen. It was not good. It was a terrible bullpen. And in the first inning, he threw 13 pitches. The slowest fastball he threw was 95 miles an hour, three strikeouts. So he comes off the field and sits next to me on the bench. And I said, Nolan, what the hell's going on, buddy? He said, Tom, I don't know, but this is one of them our days. And he looks down the bench, he goes, boys, and he yells, and everybody stops because it's Nolan's talking. He said, get me one. It's all I'm going to need today. Now, I'm thinking this is going to be interesting. But he knew in the first inning what I'm going to tell you right now. The game was a no-hitter, one walk, 14 strikeouts, no-hitter off, of, off of what kind of a bullpen? So ice, bike, media, the whole nine yards. We're the last two walking out of the clubhouse to drive home. I said, Nolan, talk to me. What was going on in the bullpen? I mean, what, what happened? He said, I wasn't worried about the bullpen because I've had good bullpens and bad outings and bad bullpens and good outings. Experience told him not to worry about that. But then he said the thing that I hope will answer your question on what is the difference between most of us and those guys. He said, besides, I've done everything I could possibly do to perform, to play for today's game. If I hadn't wanted to work, I shouldn't have hired out. Now, that's a cowboy thing. I'd done everything I could do to prepare for today's game. If I hadn't wanted to work, I shouldn't have hired out. He wanted to go play. He did everything he was supposed to do to lead up to it, and he was not going to be robbed of the experience, good, bad, or indifferent, of going out to play that game. And when he drove away, I, I wrote down as best I could everything I just told you. That story is an indicator. He did everything he could do to be the best Nolan Ryan he could be. He didn't worry about anything else. And in life, if we can do that, if we stop worrying about things we can't control and focus on the things we can and have fun doing it, that's the win-win-win. Tom, you get to sit down with someone like Nolan Ryan. I get to sit down with someone like yourself where I learned so much from. This is the final one. If you could do this, if you could sit down with anyone dead or alive, just have a long conversation, get to ask away questions of, who would you love to do that with? Well, my boyhood idol was a guy named Sandy Koufax, who I still, um, he's still my number one. And I know him well enough to say hi. And we've actually been to a few celebrity golf tournaments together, but I've never had a chance to sit down and get to know him, even in something like this. Before I die or before he dies, I would really like to sit down with Sandy Koufax and just spend an afternoon or a day or whatever time he could give me and do what you and I are doing right now. Just continuing to learn. Well, Tom House, yeah. this is this has been incredible. This has been an honor for me to, to get to have this conversation and get to share it. So I can't thank right you enough. Right back at you, by the way. You made this really easy. Great. Well, Tom House, thanks so much for joining us on What Got You There? Okay. Have a blessed day, Sean. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There? I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. 
If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.